Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the New Books Network. I'm Jeanette Cockroft. Today, I will be talking with Jeannie Guy, author of the now prize-winning book, You'll Never Find Us, a memoir. Welcome, Jeannie. Thanks, Jeanette. It's wonderful to be here with you. I'm very excited about this call. Oh, as am I. Um, I was thinking that we might start by you telling us a little bit about yourself. It's always interesting. I try to think of really clever things. However, I'm just a Midwestern girl. I'm a Hoosier, uh, from, <laughs> therefore, from Indiana. I grew up in Gary, Indiana, went to an all-white high school. Things were not integrated until the year after I graduated. Oh, my gosh. Um, and... Uh, ended up going to Indiana University and finding out that there was a beautiful world of color and personalities and people, and it was it was grand. Um, I met my first husband there, and then I went on and I studied both uh, English literature and drama. Music and drama were my two favorites in high school. How I ended up in English lit, I you know who knows. But um, I got uh, graduated from school and then uh, ultimately went to work for Ma Bell, as we fondly refer to the Bell system. I remember that. And um, stayed in the Indianapolis area. And my life went haywire after that. And we'll get into that more because that's what the book is about. Yes. But I ended up uh, living in Texas, and that's where I've been since uh, 1982, just outside of Austin. Ah. And I've been very involved since the mid-90s in Julia Cameron's work, The Artist's Way. I went from managing architects for 13 years to helping people take a long, hard look at their lives and try to come alive and... Um, do what they feel like they were meant to do or called to do, at least enjoy their lives a little more than what they were. So I've been teaching her work and then got involved with Christina Baldwin, who is my um, one of my favorite mentors. She is a giant in the field of journal writing, and that is, that is my forte. So um, I taught that work. And then I started doing my own work after that, thanks to another mentor, Susan Albert. Um, And she had me start doing, uh, again, still journal writing as the basis, reflective writing, but helping people shift in their thinking from the way their lives were currently constituted to uh, a more expansive If I could do such and such, this is what I would do, just thinking in terms of taking on their lives. So it's sort of a continuation, but it was my own work. I called it restorying 
your life. Yes. Oh my gosh, that is exciting. So, which I have done several times in my own in my own life. As, uh, well, who, as you know, who now better to be guiding book. other people then. Um, so why don't we start at the beginning of your story? Why don't you tell us a little bit about your birth family and their expectations of women in the 1950s? Because that seems to be a significant part of the foundation of your adventure. That's a really good way to begin. Um, I was very, I come from what I call a wasp, you know, the white Anglo-Saxon, Protestant, you know, just, just your standard middle-class kind of family. And, um, my dad was an insurance, uh, vice president of a small insurance company. My mother was both a homemaker and then worked at a department store for a while in her life. She and I were very close. I am the youngest of three, but I am almost 11 years younger than my sister and about eight years younger than my brother. So it was like being an only child, but with siblings kind of a thing. Yes. And, um, I enjoyed my my childhood. My parents are good people. Um, and I know that when I went off to college and I met this older, worldly, I thought very sophisticated German fellow, my mother was elated. Um, you know, I, that was, this is a common statement, but, but that was really back in the day when you went to college to get a degree for a woman, but it was also to get the MRS degree. Indeed. Indeed. So uh, Klaus uh, passed the approval of both my parents. We had your wonderful traditional wedding. Um, it was in July, and I remember that the women who attended wore gloves and hats in the heat. You oh, know, my It was God. a totally different era back, yes. back then. Yes, yeah. indeed. So I thought I was, you know, the Cinderella, and I'd live ha- happily ever after, as they say. So what happened? Why was this not happily ever after? I was 18 when I went off to college. I married when I was 20. Um, I swore I would never hit my current age and say what I'm about to say, but I knew nothing back then. And I would not recommend people getting married that young. And as a side business to my uh, being an author, I'm also a wedding officiant. And I will tell you that the couples I'm marrying these days are in their 30s. Yes. I have a wedding coming up this weekend, and I think the groom is um, 42. Oh, my God. And and I'm happy to see this because these people seem to get it. They seem to know, and they're prepared. Yes. I was 18, and I saw Klaus as what I wanted him to be. Yes. And he courted me. And um, it was the old open the door and pull the chair back. It's very appealing um, and very romantic. Yes, it was. And um, 
so those were those were happy days um and then we got once we were married i think i mentioned this in the book that i thought at one point you know who stole the the fellow that swept me off my feet so to speak even though there were many signs many red flags um but it it was not, he was done courting and he was a very opinionated um man who was a german nationalist and he was um 9 years my senior so that means he was born in 1938 and came from a Hitler era. So yes. I can leave it to the imagination of your listeners what that would mean to mm-hmm. a Hoosier <laughs> girl from Gary. You know, I just didn't, I really didn't have a clue. I did not have a clue. So what were some of those red flags that you mentioned? Mm-hmm. I joined a sorority. I was in the Kappa Kappa Gamma sorority and loved it. And he did not. He thought the whole fraternity scene was foolish. And he was obnoxious to some of my sorority sisters. And I was only in the sorority house for a year because then we got married. And and I remember my sorority mother, my sorority mom, pulling me aside one time and saying, you know, Jeannie, (laughs) you might want to rethink this. He is so abrasive. And I kept thinking, oh, but she just hasn't seen the sweeter side of him. And, you know, I kept making excuses. And if we would argue about anything, he was quick to... um, make things better or bring me flowers or, oh, Jeanette, you're making me think about this stuff. I think, you know, what was I thinking? But that's, that was it. Young and, and made the signs. I turned them into what I wanted them to be as opposed to paying attention to them. As do a lot. I don't like your question, (laughs) but, but thank you for asking. As do a lot of other young women, right? Especially when you come out of that 50s context that tells you this is what this is what you're supposed to be shooting for this is the penultimate experience and being born in the late 40s and then growing up in the 50s going off to college in the 60s and then we had the 70s era obviously where women were letting their voices be heard. So I sort of had to straddle the, oh, but I want what I thought my mother had, but I really want to be independent. And how does a young wife of a German nationalist who was a bigot and uh, his ideas about human beings and the world were so different than, than mine? personalities were really different. How do you do that? You know, you have, you have every opportunity then to grow through multiple mistakes. Um, And that's exactly what I ended up doing. And that's why I make no bones about it in the book. I do not try to paint the picture 
of the perfect woman and the evil husband. It's just, it's, it wasn't going to fly. So actually, through writing the book, I made serious discoveries about myself, things I had to face. And um, I think what was also helpful uh, was the work I was doing with other people. Because Julia Cameron's work, and again, Christina's, you're, you are with a group of people sitting in a circle, and it's very egalitarian. I was not sitting on a throne telling people how to live their lives. I was a participant and a student at this, uh, with, along with them. And I know that um, helped, me, helped me grow after the fact. So what are some of the things that you've learned about yourself? Mm. You really want to ask me that? <laughs> um, I want to ask, but that doesn't mean you have to answer. Yeah, no, but it's, um, this has to be about truth-telling and honesty. Or uh, again, it, it, it just doesn't hold water for me. Um, I don't know how much you or the listeners know about the Enneagram work. Uh, it's a personality study, basically. And I am the kind of person who doesn't know her own needs. Not only can I not meet them, but I don't know what they are. This is, I do now. <laughs> um, but so what I would do is, I would meet the needs of others to a fault. Um, it's like erasing yourself from existence. Yes, I think that's not healthy. That's a good paradigm. Um, so you you make you want other people to be happy, and if your motivation for that is is I don't know any other word but pure, that's a good that's a good thing. Of but course. if your mo- motivation is, I want you to be happy so I can be happy, that is very manipulative. Yes. And I would never have wanted to see myself as being manipulative, but that was the dark side of it. Yes. So, and that's a huge lesson, and that is a daily practice on my part now to catch myself if I you know, sort of go under the bar that I have set for yeah, myself. I can understand that. So that was that was a biggie. And the other thing is, this is really interesting because I was just looking. I have journals. I have 103 journals from over the years that I have kept. And I was looking at one just yesterday. And it was talking about, it was written in 2003. And it talked about, all the trials and tribulations I had been through with the kidnapping and on and on. But it was also a listing of the things I had learned because of what I had been through. Oh my God. And courage was one of them. Oh, my stars. And that courage. Yeah. Had, but I never saw myself as being courageous. I just knew that I had to find my kids. My kids were in in my heart and mind, um, the top of mind. But that courage is something that I would want the readers to walk away with, that they yeah. can see this imperfect 
very imperfect woman come through a crisis and know herself better and um, know that that courage came somewhere from within because I believe everybody has it. Oh, I don't think it's unique to me. I just think we hide it. It's extraordinary, isn't it? It is. Um, it's an awakening for people. Yes. And I think that's why a, a lot of people write, write books. Um, I think through telling our truths and telling our stories and sharing them, we can grow ourselves. Yeah. That was important. And other people can, can say, well, if she could do it, I could do it. Or, oh my gosh, look at all these stupid things she's done and think of all the stupid things I have done. And yet she moved forward. Yes. So I hope it is a, a book of uh, hope for people. Yes. I, I think that would, I think that's the case. Um, so, at what point did you realize this marriage was doomed, that the two of you could not remain a couple? Let's see, we were married almost 10 years. That's a long time. Um, I don't give up easily. <laughs> I can, I can um, appreciate that, another, right? No, um, no one wants to admit that a relationship has failed. Right. So I know there there were some trials and tribulations even on the honeymoon, but I would imagine, and we had some good years. I got pregnant in, unexpectedly got pregnant in 1970 with my son. And I would say things were fine for about another year year so that probably in year four uh, I knew things were were going downhill and we actually separated temporarily and went for therapy and I you know back then I thought oh look he's trying so hard and I I've made all these mistakes and um I I should try harder. I should, I, so we got back together again and then ultimately had a second child. Yeah. And a caution to uh, all listeners that second child, we had that second child to say, keep the marriage going, to save the marriage. Bad idea. Bad, bad idea. It often is. Happy I've got my girl. I'm telling you, you know, my kids are just so great. Um, but, but another really stupid, not, not a good way to, to keep a marriage going. And after having her and I went back to work, um, things really started to go downhill. And so how do we get to the kidnapping? Um, we have to get to the divorce first. Okay. <laughs> we were actually ultimately separated but lived under the same roof for about a year and a half. Uh, That's a challenge. That's a challenge. Um, Finally divorced in, the divorce was actually final 
in January of 77. 77 was the year that everything happened. The divorce yeah. was finalized. Um, but he would not agree to the divorce. He just kept saying, why can't you be happy? What's wrong with you? <laughs> I went, well, um, he would not agree unless we split everything. And by that, I mean the children as well. Oh, that must have been horrible for you. It was, absolutely. And this is in the era, or it had been. I came out of that era of the mother gets the kids, the father pays support, and everybody tries to work things out. Right. And we actually um, had a, a man who plays an important role in the book. He's called Dr. Bob. Yeah. And he had been my therapist when I gave my parents a run for their money when I was a teenager for, I was good most of the time, people, most of the time, but there was a year. (laughs) (laughs) And so they, they sent me to see Dr. Bob and um, he's a, remains a big role in the, the book. Yes. Very patriarchal. Yeah, um, I want to talk about that at some point. Okay. And so he had Klaus and me sign uh, a, a moral agreement that we would do everything to preserve the children's um, childhood. And, well, that, that, that wasn't worth the paper that we used to to you that we used to do that with um so when he asked to he said he 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 wanted tie wanted a son and i just i was sick i was literally just sick at my stomach um but i finally agreed i didn't see any other choice i didn't see any other way out because we were we were in the 70s yeah and by then, a movie was underway. Um, oh, and I'm going to forget the name of it. Um, Meryl Streep was in it. And it was about a husband and wife who get to div- divorce. Oh. She goes off. Kramer versus Kramer. Versus Kramer. Kramer. Yep. Um, and she leaves to go find herself and comes back. And the their son... And the father had bonded. But they go to court. She's given custody. And she realizes that that's not fair anymore. So the world was changing. Yes. So I was afraid to go to court. I can't so, understand that. Uh, he, he got Ty. And I was custodial parent of Megan. And... Um, Things were okay for a while because he felt if he let me get the divorce, enough time would go by and I would see the error of my ways (laughs) and and we would get back together again. Well, I met another man in April of that year, Uh, just a, a real sweetheart of a guy six foot four, big dude, and happy-go-lucky, and just the opposite of Klaus. And I thought, 
oh my gosh, look at this happiness that's awaiting me here. And we got ma- we ultimately got married in yeah. very short order. You know, we should make this, this is a cautionary tale. Here are the points I want to make with the <laughs> listeners. Don't do this. <laughs> Don't, you know. and um, if somebody had told you yeah. not to do any of these things, would you have listened? I didn't. Yeah. People said, <laughs> you know, you, you might want to, uh, uh, you've just come, I had a girlfriend tell me, you've just come off the marriage go round from hell. And I don't know that you want to do this rebound thing. She said, there's like, there's not enough Novocaine in the world. And I thought, oh, you're so wrong because look at this guy. He's wonderful. And he, and he was, and I'm not denying that, but, um, that just, you can imagine just went crazy and then began stalking me. Um, did some awful things, broke into my apartment, um, sent me horrible letters, uh, broke into my um, then husband's, or soon to be husband's uh, apartment. It was, it was terrible. It was an awful scene. So it was, um, I got married in June, and it was about six weeks later that um, Klaus was supposed supposedly had gotten a job. He had trouble keeping em- employment. Very smart man, but he would have been better to be working in a cave somewhere than be dealing with other people of other nationalities or anybody less than, you know? Ah, uh, yes. So um, in July... He wanted to take the kids to a theme park and came to me and said he was so sorry that he'd given me such a difficult time. He was dating somebody. He got a new job and life looked better. And and I thought, wow. And then I thought, oh, is this real? And then I thought, oh, but I want this to be real. real. I want this piece, you know, can yeah. And so I said, okay, do you want to borrow my car to take the kids to the, park, the theme park? It's a four-hour trip from where we live. And he said, no, he'd gotten his car fixed. And and um, he and Ty came over on a Saturday morning, Friday or Saturday morning. I'm sorry, the dates are not in my head right now. No worries. And picked up, picked up Megan, and they drove off. And that was it. He was supposed to bring them back on a Tuesday, and that following Tuesday. And um, wow, I, I can feel that night. I can smell the air and the fabric softener that I used as I got the clothes out of the dryer that was yeah. downstairs of the apartment. And we lived on the second floor. And how eerie the whole evening felt to me and he did not show up but a minister friend of ours an episcopal priest just a dear friend came and i was excited to see him but the way he walked up the stairs to the second the exterior stairs to the second floor was scary 
So I went out on the landing to greet him, and he just hung his head and pulled this a letter out from his vest pocket and said, Klaus asked me to deliver this to you. Oh, God. And he couldn't even speak. And um, I opened up that letter and scanned it, and he just said, I've taken the kids and we've gone to Germany and you'll never see us again. That was the bottom line. You'll, you'll never find us. So, you know, there's these moments in your life that stay in your head and your body at a cellular level. Yes. And that was one of them. I fell to my, almost fell to my knees. Uh, John, the Episcopal priest caught me and, uh, got me into the apartment, and my new husband of six weeks and his brother had been out playing um, volleyball, and they came running. They they heard me scream, and they came running. And so there you have it. So That's actually the opening of the book. <laughs> yes, I know. Yeah. Yeah. So... How did you get them back? Well, this is, this is a pretty extraordinary... I don't want to give too much away to people who don't know the story, but I can tell you the process that my second husband, um, his name is Haywood. Um, he lives in... We have since divorced after 26 years of marriage. Oh, yes. So I'm writing a second memoir, but we'll, we'll let that go for now. Um, I'll ask you about that too before we okay. finish. Okay. So um, he and I decided that we would move out of the apartment. And by then we were, of course, living together in, in my apartment. And we moved to a little house in Nashville, Indiana, which is uh, right part of the Brown County State Park. So anybody who's a Hoosier is going to know where that is. It's a beautiful part of it. And it's uh, not too far from where I went to college in Bloomington, Indiana, Ah. Indiana University. Mm -hmm. So we moved down to a house there that we had rented and that we were actually married in. Um, uh, It was too hard to be in the apartment and to see the room that was the kids. Oh, yes, room. of course. That's why I chose the book cover that I used, which is an empty bed with sheets that are kind of rustled with just a stuffed animal on it because it. Oh. <clears throat> just a minute. No, I, I can I can see that the, this is upsetting even now. Yeah, um, I just have to remember. They are in my life today, yes. so um, and and happily so on all fronts. But that kind but of that kind I, of I will tell you, away. yeah, yeah. We we moved down to that house, and um, I commuted to and from work. I was working in Indianapolis, and the days were long. You just had to distract yourself yeah. and. 
we had to try to work with the police and with the sheriff's department and um, our attorney uh, that we had hired worked so hard to get a kidnapping warrant. Well, that wasn't going to happen. It finally did, but it, at first it's like, no, they're with their father. Mother. The laws on the books were very, very different. Um, and they have changed. The laws have, have changed, but um, it, that's, that's probably a, a, another book I should write because it really doesn't seem to matter. There's still, the numbers are way too high of kidnap, family yes. kidnappings. But th- those four months that the kids were gone, um, was exhausting, depressing, um, trying to s- s- mentally stay afloat um, and search in every possible way that we could to figure out their whereabouts and what we would do. I was well supported by the officials at Indiana Bell. Good. They were That's gracious wonderful. and wonderful to me. And they had paperwork that said, when I find them, uh, I I need to take a leave of absence, you know, right then and there. So they had that on file. And and I will just say, when I did find out where they were, that's exactly what we did. That's wonderful. We left town and uh, went to recover the children. Now, how old are the children at this point? (laughs) Very old. <laughs> um, no, I, um, in the kidnapping. My, during the kidnapping, Megan had just turned three. Oh. And Ty was six and a half, and he turned seven during that four-month period that they were gone. Oh, my gosh. Oh, yeah. that, is, that is heartbreaking. Yeah, and you don't, you know, I, I think back to when I let them go with their biological father, uh, during that, that four months that they were gone, I was like, well, did I, did I tell them I loved them? Yeah. You know, what was the last thing I said to them? And of course, uh, you know, it was just, it just weighed on you. And, and then all the thoughts about if I'd been a better mother, if I'd been a better wife, or what could I have done differently? And and again, that's part of my personality. Um, uh, on the spectrum between character disordered, when you think the rest of the world is at fault, and then you know the the neurotics like me who would go, "Oh my God, it's all my fault. What did I do? What did what did I do? What could I have done differently?" But I I just you drove yourself crazy. <laughs> well, I think we are trained in this culture as women, mm-hmm. and particularly mm-hmm. once you become mothers. Absolutely. And, and I think, especially in that era, yes, and with what I was up against, um, and especially with Dr. Bob, the psychologist, so patriarchal, didn't think that I should have gotten divorced. And he felt like he was the only one who could help me get those children back. I needed to rely on him. I needed to rely on men to do that. Yeah. And while um, I did rely heavily and appreciated immensely the support my new husband gave me, I think I also 
learned along the way, again, that that courage was going to come from within me. I yes. had to make that happen because those kids were everything. Well, of course. So how did you make it happen? How did you finally get them back and, and become reunited? Um, we flew to the location and um, had to wait. We, it was a Friday night and um, had to wait until Monday to talk to the authorities. They weren't in Germany. Even yet. that. Pardon? They weren't in Germany, were they? They were not in Germany. They were in the States. And um, I couldn't understand. Uh, we got to, I'll, I will announce this to everybody. They were in California. And um, I couldn't believe that the Sheriff's Department would not be open for business on the weekends to talk to us. <laughs> but, <laughs> but we did meet with the Sheriff's Department on Monday, an incredibly well-thinking gentleman. And he looked at all my paperwork because by that time, Jeanette, I had paper custody of both of them. I had been able to, my attorney got us back in court. We got that. And the warrants had been put into effect. I, if they were not the first warrants ever issued in Indiana for child stealing and parental kidnapping, they were one of the first. Um, so we had gotten that far. Yes. But they, so I take all this paperwork to California and um, talk to the sheriff's department this is all great. And he said, the, the, the way the states worked, there were 10 or 11 states at that time that offered reciprocal yes. um, agreements. But in California, in Orange County, it was up to the local jurisdiction as to how they did that. So what the sheriff told me was, if he went with me to recover the children, and we'd hired a private detective out there just to follow right. my ex-husband to see where he went, where the kids went. So we knew, we knew where they were. Um, but he said, if I go with you, the children will become wards of the state of California. And I'm thinking, say what? <laughs> but but there, I, here's my paper. He said, no, I understand that. But then the courts will hear from you. And I thought, I live in Indiana, my kids are in California, I know where they are, and I'm supposed to stay here uh, for how long? I mean, I had no idea. Yeah. So I knew then that we would have to go it alone. And so that's what we did. And um, what did that look we, like? Oh, it looked like uh, going out and buying dark glasses. And I mean, you just, we, I, we didn't go so far as to get trench coats, you know, it was a, but it's this whole thought of that. We, we were novices. We had no idea. Well, again, I tell you, I'm a Hoosier, you yes. know, and I was this girl and, but I was bound and determined that this was going to happen. So we, 
took our paperwork and the next day went to my son's school and spoke with the principal there. And we lucked out. He read through everything, agreed with it. Uh, I'm not going to go into the details at that point, but we were successful then in being able to walk out of that building with my son. And then we went to the daycare where Megan was and met with the, and it was a private daycare at the apartment complex where they were living. And uh, I'm going to say this as fast as I can because I'll, I'll get all emotional again. The daycare director said my papers weren't valid in oh my God. Um, California, that she did not have to honor them, but asked, finally asked me to sit down. And we were sitting at this little kiddies table with these, on these little bitty chairs. And she said, just talk to me, tell, tell me your story, which I did. And then she told her assistant to, to go get Megan. She said, go get her daughter. Oh my gosh. So, um, they brought Megan out. We're skipping over that part too. Can't do that. Right no, now. I can understand that. But we did get her and then we uh, drove off to the airport, got on a plane to go to Birmingham, which is where my brother and his family lived. I didn't know whether we, sh- you know, it's like, where do we go? Do we go home? Exactly. What if he finds out? Is he going to, you know, so we did uh, go to Birmingham and there was a glitch having to do with the plane, and I'll, I'll leave that in the book. Um, and we stayed there with my brother and his wife for about a, a week and then flew back to Indiana. Oh, my gosh. So it was... Um, it's harrowing. You know, I, it's not... I would never wish such an experience on anybody but it really had a lot to do with the direction then of my life. Yes. And the work I ended up doing and the writing I ended up doing and the lessons that I learned. Yes. Um, Tech Nahan, who died recently, yes. the Vietnamese gentleman, um, wrote a book called No Mud, No Lotus. <laughs> ah, I don't know and, that one. Um, it's it's um, the whole idea of you just really have to go through some of the darkest, um, crappiest yes. messes in your life. But look what happens when yes. you, what becomes of all that mud yes. as the lotus grows. Yes. That's, how, that's how I feel about And I'm glad I wrote the book. Painful. It's a painful book to write. To of write. Course, of course. I much prefer to write. I'm a blogger, was, and in my teaching, I used to write really funny stuff. You know, much easier to write the funny stuff than really? in this. But I'm, I'm grateful to all those who walked with me on this path, both through the story and through the writing and yes. the publication of the book. Um, and and I'm a, I'm a, I think I'm a better person for it. Very grateful person. That would that, that makes sense to me. Um, 
Let's talk now about this issue of patriarchy, um, because there are several men besides Klaus who are part of this story and who have some very specific traditional ideas about what women should be, right? You mentioned Dr. Bob and your friend, John. Yes. Um, I would, I came from a patriarchal household, but my father was a very kind man. Um, but a patriarch not nonetheless. I remember the church we went to, what women could do and what men could do. And women did the cooking and yes. the, and the men were the, were the deacons and the elders in the church, you know, all that yep. kind of stuff. So it was an era thing. Dr. Bob, I hope people read him well in the book. I confess I waited until he died before I finished the book. <laughs> Um, because he is the father of my best friend. Yes. And I had, she helped me extensively with the book, and I did not want to write anything that um, would harm her. But she felt also that uh, people needed to hear the truth of what the patriarchy can do. Yes. And so you have Klaus, who's come, you know, back from the Hitler era, and than these white male yes. patriarchs growing up. And then my therapist, um, I mean, when I went to see Dr. Bob, and then even the whole idea of being in college, although there was a lot more freedom, it's still boys do this and girls do this, kind of a, that whole attitude. And you're less than, and you you're not a whole person um, uh, unless there's a guy around. And as wonderful as my second husband was, and you know, the knight in shining armor, he was perfect for me at that time to get those kids back. Um, there's an element to him that is because of his background and growing up that is part of that patriarchy so you know you just you live through it until you've just sort of had enough of it yep. and um, I hope women get that message and and continue to listen to it because we need that more than ever now uh, yeah, absolutely my humble opinion and I, I, I would promise wish. I won't turn into politics but I'm just saying I'm just saying <laughs> no, I share that opinion. So yeah. does that mean by extension that you've developed or have been developing some sort of feminist consciousness as a result of this? Uh, I'm going to a march on Saturday. I do what I can do now. I have at my age, although I am in good health, I may have some arthritis and a hip issue or whatever, but um, I'm in good health. My I don't have the bandwidth I used to have at yeah. 40. I look back at the story and I go, good grief, how did you do all that? How, <laughs> you, 
Well, I had a bandwidth. I was active in the community and I loved my kids. And yeah. um, I didn't take a whole lot of time to, I wanted to make sure my kids were stable and solid of before I really started to take a look at myself. But then that happened through Julia Cameron and Christina Baldwin and all that. But I think when you start paying attention to what your needs are as a human being and as a woman, you, you don't want to shortchange yourself. No. You absolutely need to spend time finding out what those needs are and then yes. meeting those needs and looking through that, uh, the eye of loving kindness so you can make a difference in the world. Make a change. Absolutely. And though I would love to do more than what I do, I do what I can. And I will be going to this march down at the state capitol on Saturday. That's wonderful. Now, let me ask, let me ask you something else. How does Dan Rather in 60 Minutes figure into this? <laughs> I, I mean, I'm particularly impressed that you were able to get him to write something endorsing the book. I noticed that on the back. So can you tell us a little bit about that? Sure. Um, Dan Rather did a 60-minute segment on Take the Children and Run back in the fall of 76. And then it played again in May of 77. And apparently Klaus heard it, saw it, whatever, and got a, the transcript from what I can tell. Um, I woke up to that fact. A friend of mine brought it up. And so I contacted CBS back when the kids were gone. Right. I got a copy of the transcript and read through it and all that. So I included that in my book because it was obviously so relevant. Yes. It's about parental kidnapping. And um, wanted to honor Dan Rather for that wonderful work that he did. So when I was getting endorsements for the book, uh, a woman who's written several books, she's a well-known Texas author, Sarah Bird. Yes. had met me through a friend and she said, if you need any help, you let me know, sister. <laughs> and uh, she had written an article about parental kidnapping and stealing kids back. So she's in the book and um, she agreed to endorse it. And then one of my critique group friends, I think it was one of my critique group friends said, you should reach out to Dan Rather. <laughs> and I said, Oh, yeah, right. And then I thought, you know what? If I have a no now, I can end up with a no, but I might end up with a yes. Exactly. So I, I wrote a long letter to him. He lives in Austin. And, I didn't realize that. Yeah. And so we have some ties in the Austin area. He and I have never met, but we have some ties. And... Um, I will let that be confidential. Oh, of course. Um, but I did get some, when I went to send him this email, you know, this letter, 
I didn't, you know, it's not like you can look on the internet and there's Dan Rather's email address. So I reached out to a family member and uh, she was so awesome. She said, I, I think he's going to like this. I think he's going to agree. So I worked with her and sure enough, he did. Wow. So um, I was I was thrilled to have him endorse the book. I would think. And I have since, I send messages to him every once in a great while. And when I, I have, he knows about the book cover getting the award and some five-star reviews I've had, but he doesn't know about the, the, the uh, silver medal that I just got for uh-huh. the book. I am anxious to pen another email and, and oh, have it get well, to him. I'm sure he'll be thrilled. So, now he's he is a wonderful man one absolutely wonderful man well we can't finish this interview up without a little bit of discussion about how your children are doing now right they're adults so yes as i said when i misunderstood your earlier question ty will be 52 this year um they were just here for mother's day oh that's mother's day is just very meaningful Yes, of course. Um, I have a picture in the front of the book, as you know, of the two kids when they were about uh, four and seven and a half. It was about a year after the kidnapping. And my son is sitting next to my daughter. They're sitting on a log in Nashville, Indiana. It's a very woodsy picture. And he's got his arm around her shoulder. Well, for Mother's Day in 2007 when we were all living in the Austin area, they went and reenacted that. And so at the end of the book, there's a picture of them in 2007. Um, So to have them here this past Sunday for Mother's Day and have this award just, I had just received it two days earlier. It was just a really, really sweet day. And so he is 52 and... Megan, who now goes by a sort of a pen name of Olive, um, she is going to be 48. She'll be 48. And then I have a, another wonderful uh, daughter from my second marriage to Haywood, Abby, and she'll be 44, 44, 48, and 52. That's wonderful. I'm lucky. I am so lucky, Jeanette. They're just they're good kids. Good kids. They're always, you know, kids, my kids. Oh, it, it's wonderful. Now, before I let you go, because I've taken up plenty of your time, what are you working on next? I decided to write a sequel um, based on me wanting to make sure my kids were stable and safe. Yeah. And back in those days, you didn't send your kids off for therapy. Yeah. Um, so my, my focus was on the kids and providing for them. And um, then I had to wake up to the fact that I had been through a trauma. Yeah. So the second book was to pick up from where we left off. But it may be another braided story um, 
starting in 2003, which is the year that Haywood and I got divorced. And I want people to, to know that when you go through a trauma, a serious trauma, it is going to affect you. It'll affect all the people that are involved. And, and it is best to get as much help as possible. So I want to, I've got all these journals. I might well might as well put them to good use. Yeah. And I want to tell this story about the second marriage and that we, you know, it, it, I think I leave the reader after the first one that we live happily ever after. And that's just not right. So again, trying to be as honest as possible. I'm doing, I'm going to be doing lots of interviewing. The kids and I actually did. I had some questions. I said, well, bring it on because we're here. We might as well talk through this. They really want to help with the second book. Oh, that's wonderful. I'm, I'm excited about that. Well, we'll be looking forward to it. Oh, good. Thank you so much. Um, it's. I hope I can get it done in 15 months instead of 15 years that the first, <laughs> the first one took. Well, maybe now that you know how to do it, it won't be 15 years. Oh, thank you so much, Jeannie, for sharing your incredible story with us. I really appreciate your time. Thank you so much. Well, I appreciate you and your questions were spot on. And um, even the emotional ones, it's good to go back and and feel all those feelings and um, know that I'm here today to talk about it. So this has been a real joy. I appreciate it, Jeanette. Yeah, you're more than welcome. Thank you so much.